This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. up on today's show, we know that increased military spending is in the offing for our country. How will we pay for it? Foreign fighters risk dragging Canada into battle. Yes, Canadians are heading over to Ukraine with hopes of joining the war effort. The Pope issuing an apology to Canada's Indigenous peoples this morning. We'll chat with Golden Eagle. Meanwhile, the federal budget will be released next week. April 7th is the date. Uh, A newly released Ipsos poll out this morning shows that defense spending uh, is a budget priority for only 11% of Canadians. Just 11%. Nonetheless, um, since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, there has been a renewed focus on Canada's defense capabilities, spending, and promises to spend more. From politicians, at least, uh, the Prime Minister saying an increase uh, to 2% of GDP, which is the agreed-upon NATO obligations, and we have some work to do to get that high. Now, it won't be cheap, but is it possible? Can it be done without completely derailing things? We're going to find out. We're going to chat now with Trevor Toom. Trevor, of course, an associate professor at the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Uh, Trevor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time, as always. Hang on a second. I need to push the button. I forgot to push the button. Hi, Trevor. I apologize. How are you? <laughs> no problem. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, first of all, let's talk about this. You know, when we talk about going up to 2% of GDP, meeting the NATO mm-hmm. obligations, where are we now? And what does that mean in terms of actual dollars and cents? I mean, how big of a lift is that for Canada? Great question. So it looks like for this past year, 2021, Canada spent about 1.4% of its GDP on the military. Just in raw dollars, that's about $34 billion for that year. And that is up from about the 1% level of GDP that we were at in 2014. Okay. And uh, so all NATO members have committed to that 2% target. And when the prime minister was at the the leaders meeting, I guess a week or two ago, they recommitted to it. And so I do expect to see something in the budget. Uh, yeah, I think we, we'll have to wait and see exactly what it is. So if we go to 2%, and I don't think that's mm-hmm. going to happen necessarily in this budget, but right. uh, who knows? When we take a look at it, the first question is, how are we going to pay for it? And as you know, there's a lot of people saying, how are we going to pay for a lot of the things that we expect to see uh, in this upcoming budget. So um, uh, the obvious response, and I hear it from people all day on the text line here, Trevor, is, well, that our taxes are going to go through the roof. That's the way you pay for these things, increased taxes. That's a possibility, right? Well, it is an option, but not a not a necessary one. And I, I agree with you, we're not going to see a jump to 2% immediately. That would probably be just completely unwise and waste some money if it was ramped up so quickly. It takes time to recruit and procure and so on and so forth. But if we gradually increased up to 2 and reach it, say, by 2028, which is where the Senate of Canada had a, a recent report recommending that be the target. So we'd bump it up by about 0.1% per year for the next few years. Okay. You could make room for that with lower spending growth elsewhere. So you could grow federal program spending, excluding the boosted military spending, still by nearly 2% a year each year. So that's a slower pace of growth than the government is currently planning. 
but that would accumulate over time and create the necessary room. Uh, taxes, you could do it um, if that was the preferred route, and it would be equivalent to about a, a 15 to 2% increase in the GST gradually phased in over time if that was the route that uh, one wanted to go. So slowing down a bit on spending, uh, how much of an impact would that have on some of the programs do you think that we've seen promised in terms of this is going to be spent on this, that, and the other thing? How much of a scale back are you talking about here? Like noticeable? Yeah. So this would be a scale back of maybe about a 1% per year slowdown in, in what is planned for growth. How that's done and which programs would uh, need to have some restraint applied to them, that would entirely depend and would depend on priorities. So if the government wanted to continue with its uh, planned rollout of newer programs or higher spending and existing ones, it could, if it wanted, say... Um, increase the eligibility age for old age security. So that we previously ratcheted that up to 67. The the new government in 2016 reversed that. That alone, moving from 65 to 67 starting next year, would basically cover about half of the military spending increase. And as populations age, I think this is something that we should, uh, or a conversation that we shouldn't shy away from. Yeah, interesting. What about, um, you know, there's a school of thought, you just borrow the money, you know, just go deeper into debt. Is that a possibility? Would that make sense? Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm personally not uh, a fan of that, but uh, the arithmetic is pretty clear. You could do it. It's a feasible option if a government wanted to do it. So. Uh, we look at public finances as economists generally to evaluate sustainability by seeing whether the debt-to-GDP ratio is falling or not. And the federal debt-to-GDP, at least in their most recent uh, fiscal update, was falling gradually over time. So they have room to increase spending by approximately 1% of GDP and still not increase unsustainably, that net debt-to-GDP ratio. Uh, so that comes with risks. I'm not sure it's uh, wise, but it's absolutely an option and probably one we would use in the short term. So, Trevor, when we take a look at this, I mean, so there's a multitude of ways they can do this, uh, all mm-hmm. kinds of different ways to get this accomplished. Um, I, I thought this would be a window to sort of do this. I, I was kind of surprised to hear only 11% of Canadians are all that interested in seeing defense spending go up to that 2%. Does that surprise you as well? It seemed like, you know, there was some momentum there, and that's why the government was willing to take this step. Well, it's been a long time since we've had defense spending at that level. We've kind of fluctuated between 1% and 1.5% for the past quarter century. So it's really not a conversation that we've really had uh, with Canadians or with the federal government. And so it might take time uh, to lay out what the options are, what the pros and cons are, what that additional spending would actually mean mm-hmm. concretely in, in terms of the military. And so I would, I would suspect that as we start to seriously have this conversation, uh, that these numbers will change in terms of public support. And the anticipation is we will get more clarity next week. I mean, that it will be in the budget in some capacity. We may not get the final numbers, but it will be uh, something that we're talking about, which, like you say, we haven't typically done before. Mm-hmm. I think no question we're going to get something in the budget. How clear of a commitment it is is yet to be determined, but country after country after country in NATO, from Germany to Italy to Spain to Denmark... Netherlands, Poland, they're all ratcheting up their their military spending commitments. And Canada, only um, uh, only a week or two ago at the NATO heads of state and government meeting, 
did agree yeah. to accelerate efforts to reach that two percent goal. So I think we'll see something, if only just a, if only just a, a nod towards right. moving in that direction. Okay, excellent, Trevor. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. You bet. My pleasure. That is Trevor Toom, who is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at University of Calgary. And yeah, we'll have to wait and see exactly what um, what the situation is. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This, this story, um, I guess it shouldn't surprise me, but in a way it does. Um, officials in Ukraine have actually had to go public this week and say, please stop coming here thinking you can join the war if you have no business joining the war. Okay, they have people showing up and, you know, to the point of people talking about their social media profiles, that's what this is about. They're going to document it all on, on TikTok or, or on Instagram and they have... Please, from you know, donate so that I can go over to Ukraine and 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 kill Russians. And now Ukraine did put out a call for international and foreign volunteers to come and help, but not just you know, video game players. They wanted actual soldiers with combat experience. So they're now saying, listen, if you don't have business being here, don't be coming here. Okay, we this. They literally said this isn't Call of Duty. Okay, this is real life. But there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have traveled to Poland uh, with hopes of joining the effort. And it brings a lot of bigger picture questions into play here. So let's get some insight on exactly how serious this is and what it could mean. We're going to chat with Tyler Wenzel, who's a Canadian military officer, a historian, and a lawyer. Tyler, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. And I, of course, have to highlight off the top that nothing I'm saying here is in any way representative of any official government policy. Absolutely. Fair enough. Uh, the disclaimer, I, I, as you say, you have to do it. Um, are you surprised that there have been so many people, I've heard thousands and thousands of people, uh, turning up primarily in Poland, hoping to, to go into combat? Are you surprised by that? No, I don't find it surprising at all. We've seen this phenomenon um, in the past. Um, the, the Spanish Civil War is, of course, the, the most notable example of that, 1936 to 1939. But any foreign volunteers who wanted to fight in the Spanish Civil War um, had a long journey with lots of off-ramps, lots of places where they would encounter friction and difficulties and legal issues, and very few of those are present in the current conflict. It is very easy to get to Poland it is very easy to go from Poland to Ukraine. You could be there tomorrow if you wanted to. So a lot of the 
um, thinking, a lot of the frictions that would otherwise be present, they're not here. You can get there almost too easily. And that Call of Duty player you're describing is sort of the prototypical example. Um, they can they can get there real quick um, and have very little business being there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, where does the U- official Ukraine position fit into this? Because they did put a call out for volunteers. Um, did they not make it clear at the beginning that hey, we don't mean Call of Duty players? You're really good at Call of Duty. Come on over. I mean, did they not? put in enough parameters at the beginning of all of this? Well, they I think they did make it pretty clear in the original call for volunteers that they were they were not just looking for people with military experience. They were looking for people with combat experience. Yeah. That's not the same thing. You could have a very long career in the military and not have any combat experience depending on where you were and what you were doing. They were asking for people with combat experience. And they they did get a lot of that. They are getting a lot of that. But they are also getting a number of people who don't know which end of the rifle is which. Uh, and perhaps these people are not taking into account the um, the challenges of military service, the challenges of military service in war, and the fact that without some of that background, um, they're likely more of a liability than they are a help. Yeah, and there's a lot of really major, major potential implications. Well, let's start with the first ones. Obviously, these these people going over there, there's a good chance they could be injured, even killed, or captured. So um, these will be Canadian citizens in some cases on the battlefield that could end up um, in the hands of Russians, right? And that's a big deal. Absolutely. So... Uh, let's address let's address the um, the injury part first of all. Um, a Canadian who goes and serves in the Ukrainian armed forces is not a veteran in Canadian law. They're not in, they're not given those kinds of entitlements. We don't. I'm not aware of what the Ukrainian armed forces are extending to people who are injured. Presumably, there's something, but it's through the Ukrainian system, not through the Canadian system. And we've already had a handful of Canadians who have been wounded and are making their way home already. This process has already started. Uh, Killed is um, obviously a tragedy, but in many ways is the the simpler one to deal with. It's a matter of of estates more than anything and uh, repatriation of, of bodies, which right now would be just extraordinarily difficult. Uh, but it's the capture piece where there's a, just a tremendous amount of risk. Russia is on the record as saying they will treat any captured foreign volunteers as mercenaries and therefore extend of the Geneva Convention. They will be tried under Russian law for the crime of being a mercenary. Okay. Is that legal? I mean, are they right? Are, are these foreign volunteers, mercenaries in the eyes of the law? No, they're not. Um, Well, uh, broadly speaking, because there will be case-by-case basis, specific deviations, but if you are a Canadian and you are serving in the armed forces of Ukraine, the official armed forces of Ukraine, you are by definition not a mercenary. You are not a mercenary under either the Mercenary Convention or 
additional protocol one to the Geneva Conventions. So labeling them as a mercenary is a rhetorical device um, with very real implications for these people. Because presumptively, anyone captured under those conditions has the right to a competent tribunal that will determine their status. Russia has basically stated, we're going to skip that step and go right to taking this foreign volunteer, if they survive and we capture them, and trying them under Russian law for the crime of being a mercenary. I have trouble imagining such a criminal hearing being apolitical in nature. Of course. The other question, Tyler, captured soldiers, Russia treating them as mercenaries, where does this we know NATO has been absolutely clear on the fact there will be no NATO troops fighting in Ukraine against Russian forces. There will be no combat. We don't want to cross that line. Does this cross the line if there are Americans or Canadians there fighting against Russian troops? Can Russia say, hey, NATO has now gotten involved? Well, with these individuals acting in their personal capacity, and as serving members of the armed forces of Ukraine. Legally speaking, that attribution to Canada, to the United States, is not there. These are individuals acting of their own free volition. There's no obligation on Canada or the United States to prevent them from going, unless we formally declared neutrality in the conflict, but that's very clearly off the table. We are providing lethal aid and pursuing sanctions and other measures against Russia. We're not neutral. We're not belligerents, but we're not neutral. So there's no responsibility to prevent those people from going. However, as a practical matter, the narrative, as Russia seeks to kind of um, plaster over how poorly this war has gone for them, um, is to try and paint a picture of greater NATO involvement than has actually been present. And captured foreign fighters, captured foreign volunteers, are um, very useful props for telling that story. So for NATO governments, let's say Canada, obviously, um, what are they telling Canadian citizens who may travel to Poland with the intent of joining in the fight here? Are they making it clear that, hey, you're on your own? Like, in terms of if you're killed, injured, or captured, don't be calling the Canadian government for assistance. We cannot assist you. Is that, does it go that far? It doesn't quite go that far. The message has been, this is a personal decision. You are undertaking this at your own risk. However, uh, Global Affairs Canada has provided services, or at least has indicated that they have offered services to Canadians who were wounded in um, in a missile strike in in Ukraine about a week ago. So it seems like, um, although there's a travel advisory in effect and there's the warnings of this is at your own risk, Um, that Global Affairs Canada does seem to be doing what they can to provide consular services, but um, that the the extent of those services kind of has to stop at the border. Amazing. Uh, Amazing. Tyler, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you giving us a little insight on how all this works. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You bet. Thank you. That's Tyler Wenzel, who is a Canadian military officer. He's an historian and a lawyer, giving us some of the the legalities around this whole situation. And I guess, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that there is a, a group of people that are interested in doing this. And you know what? There, I'm, I, I don't want to discount the 
um, Canadians who are doing this for all the right reasons. You know, some of them have ties to Ukraine, family members, whatever the case may be. There are a lot of really brave Canadians that have volunteered to go over and take up the fight on behalf of their ancestral homeland or whatever the case may be. I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about them. But but it you know if you if you read the story that Global News recently did and you hear some of the reports, some of these people showing up literally talking about their TikTok accounts and hey I just got an extra five hundred followers and they have no experience training understanding anything to do with what they're doing and uh, they're called glory seekers by Ukrainian officials saying listen if you're a glory seeker and you're here for the wrong reasons. This isn't Call of Duty. Go home. Not even, even if you're a soldier, you've been in military, they don't even want that. You need to have actually been on the battlefield, been in combat. They don't have time to train you. They need people that have been there before. Because if not, you can be more of a liability than you can be an asset on the battlefield. Now you've got, you know, Ukrainian soldiers trying to deal with somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and shouldn't be there. Now you've got that added burden on top. It's just a mess. It boggles my mind that somebody would think this is the kind of thing that you're going to go out and try as a weekend warrior. It's craziness, but it's happening. Uh, so I reached out to our friend Golden Eagle this morning and said, Hey, can you give us a few minutes today and give us your take on what happened over in Rome? And, uh, Glad to say that Marcel is joining us now to uh, talk about what happened. Uh, Marcel, thanks for calling. I appreciate your time as usual. Good morning, sir. Uh, we're live right now? We're live right now. We're on the air. No cursing, okay? <laughs> oh, so, I feel bad about that. Um, no, don't. Um, hey, so uh, uh, the papal apology, it was a surprise to me. Was it a surprise to you, and how important is it? Well... It was a surprise. I mean, if then it's very important. Um, could have picked a better day. But uh, realistically, uh, it's a good thing. I spoke to my mother about it because I still have uh, a little jaded attitude uh, when talking about uh, the, the, the apologies that are required. I think from church and government with regards to residential school uh, era in the 60s scoop. But I spoke to my mother this morning about it and... Um, it's a sense of relief for all the people that attended the, the residential school and their families. Um, and and uh, it's about time is one of her references. Mm-hmm. And uh, it'll help with people um, in their healing journeys. Yeah, talk, uh, tell, explain that to me, Marcel, because we've played some clips from people who were in Rome, and that, that's what they were talking about. It allows them almost to, to close a door and move on into healing. Just... Why is why was this apology so important as part of the healing process, the reconciliation process? Where does it fit in? Well, it, it's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement of the wrongs that were done to the native people of uh, of this continent, uh, in the name of progress or or colonialization or or uh, the Great Move West or what have you, taking up the lands of the of the native people in order to um, to uh, to to populate our lands, right? And so there's a bigger conversation that needs to be had, and that's with regards to our, our land, our country, and, and whatnot. Um, and and the apology is is one of those great first steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spoke to my siblings about it this morning because we didn't attend the, the traditional idea of what an Indian residential school is. Um, 
but we still uh, experience some of those abuses. We still experience some of that racism, but not to the extent of the residential school survivors experienced it. And this um, this apology from the top, from the Pope, uh, I think he's the 16th Pope, um, is welcome and necessary in order for the world to understand and for, in order for the country to understand that it, that reconciliation starts at the top, top of the churches, top of, top of the government, top of the justice, and it starts with each individual. And uh, and this is a good first step. Hopefully, uh, the Pope will come to Canada and, and visit the, the Aboriginal communities, well, let's say the, the Native communities uh, across the country, visit the First Nations, the Métis, the Inuit, and not just make one global umbrella of an apology and just visit those communities come to our sun dances come to our our sweat lodges and meet the people right don't just come and meet the government and and make a, an apology in some great cathedral over in in western Can- eastern canada come out and meet the people come to the communities i think that'd be fantastic he has said that he wants to do that, and you know, in his comments today, he said he was he was moved by, you know, the the culture and um, the connection to the culture, and he sees he was talking about the intergenerational trauma. I'll just I'll just play it for you, Marcel. That's easiest instead of me trying yeah. to put it into the words of what he said. This is um this is what he said today. I found this really important. It's chilling to think of determined efforts to instill a sense of inferiority to rob people of their cultural identity, to sever their roots, and to consider all the personal and social efforts that this continues to entail, unresolved traumas that have become intergenerational traumas. So, Marcel, like you say, he acknowledges the past wrongs and the damage that it did and all the things that took place. But he also talks about how it continues to today. And I know this is what you work on now. You're still dealing with the intergenerational trauma. How important is it that the Pope stood up and said, I recognize that this is still being felt today? Well, it's important. I mean, uh, a lot of uh, society looks down on on people that are suffering social issues, whether it's alcoholism, drug abuse, incarceration, or whatever our people are, and many different people are going through. Um, but it's residual effects of the residential school. It's the residual effects of the 60s group and the, the governments of Canada taking the Indian out of the child, right? Yep. And then I, I started my own group home here in Edmonton. It just opened up. We did a grand opening on March 23rd. And uh, I hate to say this term, I hate to say this term, but it's my responsibility, I believe, to put the Indian back into the child, right? It's up to us as Native people to help heal our own people. We have the resources amongst ourselves and in our, in our elders, in our sweat lodge ceremonies, in our Sundance ceremonies, in our own teachings. And that's the foundation of my group home. That's the foundation of the treatment center I'm opening with the community in eastern Alberta. In Frog Lake, we're opening a, a treatment center that's going to help youth um, reunify with their culture, their language, their ceremony, and their people, right? And we're putting the Indian back into the child, one child at a time. Hey, Marcel, and why think, do you say you hate to use that term? Why do you hate to say, put the Indian back in the child? Why, what's wrong? why do you feel that way? Because we're not Indian people. We're Nehiwak, we're Ashinaabe, we're Mohawk, we're Lakota, we're Dene, you know? 
the Indian uh, the Indian word that doesn't describe who we are. That's a government label that was used to describe who our people were. If they used our language, they would know we were Ashinabi. They would know we we're Nehawak, right? And so it's up to us to put the Nehawak back into the child. But I use that term because that's that's the term that John A. Macdonald's government used um, at the time of uh, Confederation. Gotcha. Um, uh, Ch- uh, Chief um, Gerald Antoine said this was an historic day. Um, how historic is it, and how how where does it fit in terms of this journey that we keep saying we're on towards reconciliation? Um, what does today mean on, on that path? Well, it's opening a door. Okay. Right? The, the, the Pope's apology is opening that door. They put the key into reconciliation. They've turned the key, and now they're going to open that door. I believe they need to visit this country and visit the Native people, the Métis people, the Inuit people, and, and express those those apologies personally over a table, over a ceremony with a handshake or something, presenting of tobacco and protocols, our way of doing things, right? And I think the government needs to be involved with that. I listened to Justin Trudeau this morning talking about uh, the Pope's apology and how he was specific in how the Catholic Church accepted the blame for what they did, but the government was also involved. The government also had a place to to, to play in that. And it, get, it seems to get lost in translation after former PMO, PMO Stephen Harper made the apology. Uh, nothing substantive has been done since then. I drove my mother to the ceremony when uh, Stephen Harper made the apology, and uh, it was a great thing. But it it lost some steam somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so each progressive government, each elected government that's come into place hasn't picked that reconciliation up wholeheartedly and, and, and walked with it. You know, that's something we need to do. Um, the, the, the settler community, the Canadian community needs to do on their own. Native people can't drive the reconciliation bus. That's not up to us. That's up to the Canadian government, the Canadian people. Marcel, it's always so... Uh... It's so rewarding to, to bring you on. I thank you for your time. Uh, we'll, we'll chat again soon, my friend. I got it. Do you have one minute? Go quick, real quick. Hey, or how minutes. about this? Can you hold for three minutes, and then I'll give you a couple minutes when we come back? Sure, I'll grab a okay. coffee. Yeah, let's do that. We'll put uh, Marcel on hold for a few minutes and come back after the 11.30. And we're talking with uh, Marcel, Golden Eagle, getting his take on the papal apology this morning. Uh, you, had, you had something else that you wanted to say, Marcel? Oh, yeah. Well, I've got a couple things i got okay. lots to say. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I know but, you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, when I spoke to my mom this morning, um, my mom's 80, 80 years old, and she went through the residential school experience, maybe not to the same uh, degree as, uh, as a lot of the people that experienced uh, the hardships, the rapes, uh, the beatings, you know, the stamping out of their cultures. Um we talked about that, and she said that uh, the, the papal apology is a good first step. Uh, but she also spoke about the Ukrainian community in Canada. You know, and that's just like my mother to think about other people, uh, even in, in good times and bad times like this, is uh, the Ukrainian people, she said, experienced similar, similar things to the Native people when they first arrived here in Canada. They had uh, their language and their culture was under attack from from the church and certain segments of government and society. And she said that hopefully one day the Canadian government and the churches would apologize to the Ukrainian people for, for the treatment they received when they first arrived here in our country. And I think um, 
because we've done so so through many things, the Ukrainian people and the native people have a relatively great relationship. Um, just like the Choctaw people in the USA have a great relationship with the Irish people based on our sufferings and how we've helped each other cope, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's just something she had talked about. And um, You know what, Marcel, it's really weird. I was talking to Sarah during during the news break there. Sarah's yeah. from Two Hills, and she has Ukrainian family. And we were she was talking about going home this weekend or whatever, and, we were ta- and she was saying, you know, how a lot of her family, the Ukrainian family say, yeah, it was the natives when they came over that, that really helped them that really, you know, and they, and they spent a lot of time together. And like you say, they have that, that shared experience. Oh, for certain. My dad and his brothers used to work with a lot of the Ukrainian people around, um, um, St. Paul, two Hills. There's a yeah, bunch of different yeah. communities, right. They used to work and farm with them. So there's a lot of, uh, synchronicities there and synergies there. But realistically, I think my mom's onto something that, the Ukrainian people do need um, an apology, just like the First Nations, the Métis, Inuit. They need that acknowledgement so that they too can move on and perhaps finally find their place in the fabric of Canadian society. And the other thing I want to talk about is, is perhaps right here on the radio, we invite the Pope to come to Canada and say, come to our communities, come to Frog Lake First Nations Powell and apologize. Make that apology there, or to Fort Chip, or to Iqaluit you know, or to somewhere in eastern Canada, come this year, don't wait, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and let's 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 kick off this reconciliation journey together. Maybe we've got mm-hmm. some momentum based on what happened today, and like you say, we've had it before. Uh, it's, the, yeah. it's the sustaining it, that we need to continue to walk with it, which is a great way of putting it. Yes, and, and we, make, we need to make that commu- the commitment, not just government, not just church, but but uh, the native community and the and the Canadian the Canadian society, we all need to work together towards uh, reconciliation. I, I firmly believe that um, that the Pope needs to visit our communities and come and, and ask for that forgiveness and make that apology. May not always get it, and maybe people are still not ready to talk to the church. But it's a good first step. Yeah, it okay. really is. I think the door is opening and, and towards reconciliation. And uh, maybe we can start having those discussions for our lands and uh, returning our lands and our minds and resources and being be- becoming a part of the government of Canada, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're seeing some progress. And Marcel, I always appreciate uh, you taking some time with us. And uh, you have a good day, my friend. One more thing. Quickly, quickly, quickly. <laughs> I've changed your name, Shay. I've changed your name. Okay, what do I know? I've changed your name to something that you can appreciate. That, that doesn't talk about you in the personal, and it is now Wapastim. Wapastim? Yeah. What does that mean? It's like the sacred white horse. Sacred white horse. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah it's a good one. It's That's a, good a one. really Wapastim. Yeah. I like that. Okay. I'll send you a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Marcel. Take care, my friend. You too. Right. See you later, bud. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.